0: Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. I'm Edwin Davis and joining me this week through the miracle of satellite technology, it's Emily Benita. Hi Emily, how's it going?
1: I'm very well, thanks Ed. Uh, my cold has disappeared uh, rather than uh, how I was battling with it last week. It's just all the exciting updates here on Shot Reverse Shot. What can I say? Mm. I had a mild um, illness and now it's gone. Um so yeah, thanks for tuning in, everyone.
0: <laughs> yeah, ailment corner over for another week. Um,
1: <laughs> That's the I, offshoot I, 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 podcast. <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh, I still have a little bit of a uh, bit of allergy stuff playing up, but I'm soldiering through, and uh, yeah, just just trying very very hard not to constantly sneeze and wheeze on mic. So if this sounds clear to everyone, it means either I was very healthy or I had a hell of an edit. So. We'll see how that turns out. So we'll go on to the news for this week, and really the kind of the big entertainment news story, I guess, was the culmination of the Disney Fox merger. Disney who purchased or started making the move to purchase Twentieth Century Fox last year, kind of completed it this year, and that Uh, at the time was met by this very starkly divided reaction where people who maybe don't know that much about how movies are made and why monopolies are bad were like oh my god great now that all the x-men are going to be in the mcu or or like people seem to think that it seemed to be this kind of cool strange thing that they didn't really understand in except in the most maybe baseline way and everyone who maybe follows the industry was like oh this is gonna lead to a lot of jobs being lost and a lack of diversity of movies being made just because you're going to have one viewer studio and Fox tended to focus on somewhat different kinds of movies to what uh, to what Disney did and then you know so there was a bit of a a contretemps about that at the time that the movie the the, the news was first announced and then this week immediately the day after the Merger was finalised. It was announced that Fox Two Thousand, which is one of Fox's kind of mid-budget offshoots, which had produced things like The Life of Pi and things like that, had was going to be closing down and was not going to be rolled up into Disney. And people kind of reiterated the fact that the buying of the studio means that about five to ten thousand people are probably going to lose their jobs. And yeah, like I said, gonna end up in a situation where there's fewer movies being made in general and also fewer of different types of movies as a result of this this merger.
1: I was saying to you just before we came on, mic, Ed, that I am struggling to find a take other than being really flumped about this. Uh, there's, mm. there's so much that's just flumping me silly right now. And it's hard not to... That way, looking at the statistics, I genuinely can't see how this is a good thing. Kaylee Donaldson uh, was writing in Pajiba and she says, Not only are thousands of people set to lose their jobs, like you were saying just there, but it reduces the number of major film studios in Hollywood from six to five and gives Disney hmm. a mind boggling 40% share of the entire market. Like, come on, can we just really can we just finally puncture the idea that ultimately uh the american film industry is anywhere near like a meritocracy particularly with looking Mm -hmm. at fox 2000 being shut down because it was a repeatedly successful indie outfit yeah and it wasn't it didn't It didn't make blockbusters, but it was never meant to. And it did do things like you know the Hate You Give and Love Simon, which are not you know huge huge tentpole pictures, but they tapped into really important young adult audiences mm. and and a lot of uh, more women focused films as well, hidden figures, which has its problems. Including a uh, Kevin Costner playing a white savior who mm-hmm. who did not exist, but Devil Wears Prada, and again and again Fault in Our Stars, another uh, YA um, literary yeah. adaptation in her shoes, just like these these films that you you can't solely have a business that's just these high risk, high reward, massive budget, massive return, right? Because that's not guaranteed. Like if you don't kind of, I'm I'm no major. Capitalist Ed, I think I've made that quite clear. But even I know that you kind of keep your portfolio diverse, mm-hmm. right? And and you know, Fox two thousand was run um by a woman, Elizabeth Gabler, and it did it it was upfront about its specialisms and it delivered really well on that, and yet it can still just be folded mm-hmm. because let's be honest, in terms of its its content, it's probably not the kind of thing that Disney wants to go forward with. Because actually dealing with the nuance of underrepresented audiences may not be uh high on their list. I don't know. It, yeah, flumped.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much the same take that I have on it. I saw some takes that were like the most hyperbolic was someone saying like you know um talking about how it was like the death of cinema or something like that which i think is maybe taking it mm. a little too far i think the history of hollywood is about ebbs and flows and different things becoming more popular at certain points and then dying out and people having to recalibrate but this definitely feels like a disney consolidating their position as the people who own the biggest franchises the biggest IPs and being able to somewhat future proof themselves from a possible future where the only kinds of movies that get widespread theatrical distribution are are blockbusters because if you're the company that makes all the blockbusters then you know you have a de facto monopoly because no one else has enough money to kind of put them up exactly. and do it that way and it's interesting that that's happening at the same time that like You know, this weekend, Us, the new Jordan Peele movie, made $70 million, which is the highest opening weekend for an original horror property and is generally, like, a very... uh, is, is a good, original, smart genre movie that was made for not very much money, and I think points to Universal, who are behind that and who, over the last couple of years, have really demonstrated an ability to work with a diverse slate of... Of projects of different types and sizes, like they have, the you know, fast and furiouses, which are huge blockbusters that are going to make huge amounts of money and cost a lot. But then they also invest in lots of smaller stuff through their work at Bloomhouse or just through, you know, something like the the Luc Besson movie Lucy, which was a movie that they bankrolled for absolutely no money and made an absolute killing on. So I think you the, 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 there are there are other uh, studios out there who are willing to kind of pick up the slack and make movies for a smaller budget and maybe and obviously there's lots of just smaller labels and production companies in general who are going to put time into developing new voices on a smaller scale and things like VOD obviously offer a lot of opportunities for people to pursue those directions but I think certainly in the near future this points to the Disney really doubling down on only wanting to make movies that are gonna gross like a billion dollars worldwide, yeah. and anything other than that not really factoring into their plans apart from instances where they can make a movie and you know they hope to come away with some sort of Oscar buzz for it or some sort of prestige or to bolster their reputation as a corporation with kind of like good good values when it comes to things like representation or whatnot which is kind of like a nice thing to pay lip service towards but obviously reads is incredibly hollow when you look at the fact that a move like this is by its very nature going to reduce the the diversity of projects that are going to get made in Hollywood because fewer people are going to have jobs and fewer people are going to be able to make movies
1: yeah for sure the only hope I can see in this and and this is um a stretch but you will have all of these people who are being laid off are still talented people with experience mm. and hopefully will have a uh, quite significant severance pay so yeah. the you know there might be a kind of migration and maybe people getting together and hopefully the, the only I mean practically we'll see but using a little bit of kind of charitable interpretation and, and, and hope in um, the endeavor of uh, creative types is that what if these people were to come together and create their own studio thereby replacing the kind of the, the bayam behem- you know, not sure that they'd be able to immediately replace a, a bayam off, but it could up the number. And, and there is a lack of the smaller studios and, you know, even though Fox 2000 has been folded in that way. And you know, money, money and structure are really important things. They're two of the most important things, unfortunately, but there's still a lot of very talented people out there. You know, Elizabeth Gabler is still there. All these filmmakers are still there. It's just a real flump in shame that they will have to work hard just in order to be able to do the work they wanted to do in the first place when it was all going really well, <laughs> basically.
0: Mm, yeah, Absolutely. And our next story, and it's just kind of a quick mention because it literally just happened, but uh, Larry Cohen passed away. Larry Cohen is kind of a great veteran of American exploitation and independent cinema. He'd been working in the industry for about six decades and over the course of a a long and varied career kind of like wrote and directed things like uh, It's Alive and Maniac Cop and Cellular, I think was one of his most recent credits although he, he kind of was working on projects in various stages of development all the way up until his life worked in tv as well worked on things like uh Columbo back in the 70s just a a real film industry lifer who made these really interesting socially conscious but incredibly fun and goopy and strange movies like the stuff or cue the winged serpent just a, a fascinating guy who i think. It's a real shame to whenever someone like that passes away because on some level someone like him or roger corman they represent a very scrappy almost working-class approach to the film industry that things like the the, the fox disney merger kind of seem inadvertently or not to stamp out to a certain way like the idea that you can just exist on the margins for decades and decades and just make the stuff that you want to make however you want to make and still leave it all with having had you know some successes but mainly having left behind a tremendous body of work and you know great deals of affection from those who knew and admired you
1: yeah more more goopy cinema
0: so our topic for this week is the 20th anniversary of the matrix which opened in march of 1999 and yeah just makes me feel old uh <laughs> that the matrix is is that old but it's you know uh, when a, sh- uh, a movie hits a significant milestone we like to talk about it on this show and talk about the movie itself and its legacy and uh i, I kind of feel like weird thinking about describing the matrix because it's yeah. such a huge movie that had such a huge seismic impact for such a long time and continued to reverberate but for people who maybe aren't familiar the matrix was a movie directed by the wachowskis which came out as i said in 1999 was the follow-up to their 1996 neo-noir bound which had been a movie that did uh, okay was like a, a fairly low budget thing but you know made a, a decent amount of money and showed that they were kind of quite talented filmmakers and they you know, took a big swing on their second movie, which was this $63 million budgeted, very heady sci-fi action movie that, you know, was coming out before the summer had even really started, you know, was coming out uh, in the sort of the, the start of spring. I don't think people had terribly high hopes for it, especially in a year where The Phantom Menace was coming out and that was the big groundbreaking sci-fi movie that everyone was talking about but over the course of the summer it you know held really well it it earned over 170 million in the u.s and made like 500 something million worldwide it was i think the fifth most successful film of the year in the end which was you know i think beyond a lot of people's wildest dreams for a movie that was fairly uh, unheralded initially and uh, and really outperformed all expectations and I left a really sizable impact on on popular culture on action cinema on special effects filmmaking on blockbusters for years and years and years to come and so before we get into kind of discussing the movie itself Emily what is uh, your relationship to the Matrix do you, do you remember when you first watched it
1: no <laughs> no I do not remember when I first watched it but I do think I started to see it being referenced first. And then got to watch it. Mm -hmm. So it was this kind of feedback loop thing of seeing it start to pop up in things. Because really, the big thing is bullet time. Mm -hmm. I think that's the lasting legacy of The Matrix. And it's a weird one because I'm not really sure what other films have been able to use it and make it its own. But, you know, things like Scary Movie and endless kind of parodies and references of getting it in there to the point where it has kind of obscured how amazing that must have been at the time. I don't think I've seen The Matrix more than once the film itself, right? Because it's so referenced, because it became kind of ubiquitous. And in in the way that TV... did has like particularly reality tv like i've never really watched the x factor or um strictly come dancing because everyone's talking about it and i I, that was enough for me really but i think the two lasting legacies are bullet time and the concept of the red pill (laughs) Mm. (laughs) in our current landscape which i think is pretty dubious even though you know it's it it ends up that you know for some reason mras and incels are quite happy to use terminology that's actually created by two trans women but there you go mm-hmm.
0: yeah it's it's very interesting like that that was actually something i hadn't even considered like the red pill connection just because like that is the idea of like the taking the red pill going like going seeing how far the rabbit hole goes and things like that it's that's such a commonplace idea now that i do i had in my mind just completely separated it from the fact that it comes from the matrix which is incredibly weird like it, it was such a at the time it was such a ubiquitous pop cultural like you say like in terms of parodies everyone every comedy for like the next couple of years seemed to have to have a matrix thing spaced most kind of like oh. famously for me, did, did a few episodes where they did Matrix jokes, including one which was a fairly prolonged homage to it with uh, Kevin Eldon playing the Hugo, Hugo Weaving role, which I'm very, very fond of. And also things like, you know, I always remember the end Sync episode of The Simpsons has a joke in it about how they have to like do this dance routine that ends with a Matrix and then they had to recreate the um you know the jump in the air and the camera tilt and then someone fell and i remember that one being (laughs) quite funny um uh shrek obviously had one as well that was a big one i remember and it it was it was this real example of a movie like the sixth sense which came out the same year of a movie that had you know it was an r-rated movie so you know in the uk of 15 so People, you know, kids weren't meant to have seen it. Obviously, everyone probably did through pirate video or just waiting until it came out on home video. But even without having seen it, and I didn't see it until it hit video, uh, everyone knew something about The Matrix. They all knew what bullet time was. They all knew about, like, red pills and things like that. They knew about the, you know, the, the, the look and the style of it. It was a movie that had... You know, despite its its initially kind of inauspicious beginnings when it when it first came out, and this idea that it was a movie that people were kind of interested in, but wasn't by any means this guaranteed huge success. That you know, very quickly it had entered the the cultural lexicon in a major way.
1: You're right, and a major major way, and exactly that your uh, experience there of not connecting the. The, the reference to where it came from, it's almost Shakespearean. It's kind of like, oh, if you think of pretty much any kind of turn of phrase in English, it's more than likely to have, uh, Shakespeare to have, have come up with it. Um, yeah. The real, the real bangers anyway. And um, I think the amazing thing is that obviously The Matrix came out in uh, 99 and we're both feeling um, existential about that. Um, <laughs> and it's amazing that it did spread like it did before the real rise of the internet because it does seem Mm. to be and in a more playful way because it's not um it doesn't have the actual thing that it's um criticizing right it's not on the nose it manages to have some distance because it is being very prescient because the world that we live in now was kind of just starting to establish itself then but this idea of essentially being batteries for machines and living in a virtual world like looking back and realizing oh that's what it was about like there's this incredibly believable world that's virtual right it's not some utopia it's just less shit <laughs> than mm. even the, the actual um, burlap sack clothing shaved head reality plane of existence and i think that's what's quite that's what's quite amazing if like to watch it now i think i and i, and I can't tell them whether stuff would be on the nose because you're right that kevin eldon um impression um or homage is it mark Gatiss mm. as well
0: yeah but yeah. yeah they play the two agents in space yeah
1: as the two agents they don't like it's obviously because it's within the context of space we know it's funny but I don't think they're playing it that different from how Hugo Weaving played it like it's it's quite it's exaggerated right like that like their impression is not played for laughs it's played incredibly straight and that's what works about it and there are moments which are just a bit earnest like pretty much one of the only quotes I can remember is I know Kung Fu. Mm-hmm. Like, like, you know, just being able to download skills into your head and, and just, and there's so much work and thought that's gone into it. Right. Um, in terms of the research that the Wachowskis did. And I do think they are trying to engage with some really, uh, it's, it's a philosophical film, you know, yeah. in, in you know, ask asking about like touching on lots of different kind of like thought experiments. Um, but, I don't think it ever develops anything as well as maybe we remember it doing. It it all does sound a bit like two in the morning passing a joint kind of thoughts. But what The Matrix did do, which I'm not entirely sure anything had done before, was it managed to mix that kind of intellectual motivation with really stunning visuals and Mm. and action. Like, Inception yeah. wouldn't exist if it weren't for The Matrix.
0: Oh, yeah, totally. I think also what you see, and uh, this is this is a lofty comparison, <laughs> but I th- I always think of Get the, the Matrix as, as being somewhat similar to Citizen Kane in the sense that Awesome Worlds didn't really invent anything no. new for Citizen Kane. Like, all of the techniques he was using were being pioneered and used by other filmmakers, and he... What was what was novel was he was combining them in a way that people hadn't really done before yeah. and that is equally true about the Wachowskis and the Matrix you know like a lot of the imagery and the aesthetics they're playing with are drawn heavily from Japanese art from manga and anime and from John Wu movies and you know a lot of Hong Kong action movies So there are bits and pieces that they are drawing from but they're the synthesis that they, brought together for all of those really i think crystallized a lot of ideas certainly in in western audiences about the nature of dystopia and what technology should look like i think i feel like every every kind of like dystopian sci-fi cybernetic robot movie made since 1999 is playing in the sandbox that the Matrix set up. Like if you look yeah. at something like Elite Battle Angel, which came out this year, and there's obviously a little bit of recursion there because the manga of Elite Battle Angel existed long before the Matrix movie did, but yeah. like the the aesthetic that Robert Rodriguez is using for that movie and a lot of the the techniques that were being used are ones that were kind of supercharged and put into and and proved to be commercially viable by what the Wachowskis did on The Matrix. And I think that in a way really is one of the the less tangible but still quite clear impacts that the movie had uh, on just on, on on certainly on American cinema. Like every vision of this kind of like horrible dystopian future that we now get Uh, also weirdly kind of looks like a a Hong Kong action movie or a kind of vaguely noir shaped and certainly uh, the use of a green filter is something that I think has become much more commonplace thanks to The Matrix.
1: And I think you're right it definitely was that kind of watershed moment in terms of this is the mix that we're putting together and going forward now like this is what the future looks like because Mm. I guess Yes, Inception wouldn't have happened if it weren't for The Matrix, but The Matrix wouldn't have happened if it weren't for Blade Runner. Yeah. But it was an update. And, I mean, personally, I prefer the look of Blade Runner to The Matrix, but you kind of had this shift from a neon yet really thick, heavy uh, haze and all this kind of pollution. And, again, really heavily influenced... From from Asia, like in terms of the looks, like so much of Blade Runner is kind of more Japanese, like Tokyo. Yeah, 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 yeah. But but again, Blade Runner has its noir um, roots, kind of more firmly on its sleeve. Whereas Mm. you know, there's no noir elements to the Matrix at all. It's very firmly this is action, this is dystopia. Mm-hmm. Even even though you could kind of make a stretch in terms of that and be like, oh, well, you know, is Trinity a sort of film for Is there? Not really. It is just your kind of straight cut action film. And I think that's why, in a way, unfortunately, it has been kind of usurped by a, a darker corner of the internet for so long, because it does have this mix of kind of Fist fighting and uh, um, quite uh, koan sounding philosophy but then without actually <laughs> going through the beat by beat not not really holding up to rigorous critical thinking should we say and I guess there's a lot of um, alien in it as well I think there's a mm. bit more of that kind of quite sterile uh, feel to it yeah it's kind of it's a bit slimy and I think what is amazing about the matrix is that Um, and the in the aesthetics and the thing that really sticks in my mind um, is that those running lines of green code yes and how incredible that poster was how that kind of slipped into the actual fabric of the film and so you kind of knew from the beginning what what this was and but it was shot on film was it not
0: yes yeah which, which is a nice were.
1: kind of <laughs> contrast that it is a film about everything being made <laughs> from digital code but it's one of the last last ones to be shot on film
0: <laughs> mm, i think there's there's probably a lot of digital photography used for like the the bullet time sequences themselves which they they set up using this very at the, certainly at the time very um innovative rig of you know thousands of or maybe maybe at least hundreds, but you know possibly yeah. thousands of digital cameras all taking a screenshot at, at, you know every couple of seconds and then using that to construct it. So it was definitely a movie as well that was pushing forward on what you could do with digital effects and special effects, whilst also being fairly strongly tethered to you know this analog world of of cinema that was. Still go fairly robust at the time, I guess. But you know, the like the next year, you have something like Chuck and Buck coming out, which is a a movie shot entirely using commercially available cameras. Or Bamboozled as well. I think also came out the same year. You know, there are there are definitely signs on the horizon at this point that a different way of shooting movies is becoming possible, but isn't isn't technically quite there yet. But yeah. so you so you have something like The Matrix, and then later the Lord of the Rings movies, where you are melding the two uh, in a way that uh, certainly for me works incredibly well i think the effects in the in the matrix still hold up incredibly well in part because like i say the movie the first movie was made in a fairly it, it's kind of hard to say like if it's a big or a spawn budget because i think i think 63 million is a lot of money for a movie that you're not certain is going to be a hit like yeah for a guaranteed blockbuster 63 million in in 1999 probably feels like okay that's worth taking a gamble on whereas if it's something where okay these these two filmmakers have a small-ish hit under their belt and they've written a Stallone movie you know like maybe it's worth taking a pun but 63 still seems like quite a lot and I think the limitations help them a little bit there in that they can't get too over the top in what they want to do with the technology or run too far ahead of themselves by doing stuff that would just look terrible because the technology wasn't there yet. They really were experts at, you know, realising the limits of what they could do uh, that would still look good. And that's Mm. probably one of the reasons why the first movie in particular aged really, really well.
1: For sure. And it's kind of amazing that they were able to get the kind of go-ahead for The Matrix off the back of Bound being their first Mm. film. Yeah. Which you know uh, has so much going for it, but that is a fucking leap. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Being like, "Yep, yeah, cool." So we had, uh, you know, we had Susie Bright come in and choreograph sex scenes, and our budget was six million, and we made a million on top of it. Uh, yeah, cool. Give us what ten times that. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Which I don't know. I kind of kind of miss the days when you uh, could take um, some some plucky. Lucky siblings who had a had a dream. I don't know, and it and it, you know, in terms of franchises, it came back so well for them. Where do you feel that like the franchise sort of really tapered off? Because I feel like that the anticipation for the sequels, I hadn't really experienced anything like that because it wasn't like it. It's not like Lord of the Rings where we knew that it was a franchise because. Mm-hmm. It's a series of books, right? The Matrix was like original and then there was the announcement of like, oh no, there's not gonna be just one, there's gonna be two. And I don't remember really experiencing that anticipation until like Star Wars came back, you know. Um mm. and and pretty much everyone was resoundingly disappointed by the two sequels. But yeah. I I remember so much other stuff around it, like the Animatrix as well. Like mm. it, it did it did seem to be um pretty innovative and again uh, as i keep banging this drum but like before the internet yeah you know and, and um not not quite like a, it's not quite an extra like you and i were talking about um a few episodes ago but to actually expand that universe and to give the i think they wrote about four of the animatrix stories but but handed over and and, and brought in anime directors who they respected admired wanted to work with wanted to share that intellectual property with um Mm -hmm. is kind of amazing
0: yeah absolutely i think if you if you were to kind of chart on a graph the kind of the peaks and valleys of the matrix franchise i really do feel like the absolute peak of it was from the release of the first movie until like mid 2001 because there was only one movie Every, not, not everyone loved it but i think a lot of people loved it and were really excited by it that's when you started to see a real upshot in people parodying it and mm. other filmmakers trying to rip it off you know you see something like mission impossible 2 which came out in in 2000 and like was in production for a while and obviously was directed by john Wu, who obviously had a huge influence on what the wachowskis were doing in the matrix but I think it the success of the Matrix kind of made the studios more amenable to the style that Wu wanted to use for that movie. You have something like Charlie's Angels, which owes a lot to the Matrix. I think also has like a fairly notable bullet time sequence in it. There are that that's kind of like the peak of its cultural cachet. Is the first one's out? It's pretty widely loved. It was a huge success, and everyone is just really excited to see whatever the Wachowskis do next. As soon as the uh, matrix reloaded comes out you start to see the bloom come off the rose a little bit that's also around the time you see the release of enter the matrix the spin-off game which you had to play in order to understand who several of the characters in the movie were (laughs) which um was a somewhat misguided attempt at brand integration uh it has to be said and also not a very good game By, by the time Revolutions has come out, like famously they put out, they filmed those two back to back and they put them out six months apart. The first one I think opened, maybe even broke the opening weekend record. It was like a huge, huge uh, blockbuster success. The third one came out and it earned like maybe half of what the second one did because everyone was just so burnt out on the Matrix at that point. And, and for me weirdly the thing it reminds me about it of is back to the future because yes uh the first back to the future you know the ending is you know where we're going we go we don't need roads it's about your kids you know and, the, and all this sort of stuff and then bob gale and robert zemeckis have, have long said oh we had no idea we were going to make any more movies that was just a fun joke like that yeah. we put at the end of the movie but then the first <laughs> the first back to the future was such a overwhelmingly huge success they were like oh fuck got to make two more of these and that's why the first part of back to the future 2 has always felt really wonky for me because they have to contend with where they left the characters at the end of the previous movie and that is like uh okay well uh she's is still in the car with them so i guess we knock her unconscious and have her just kind of like wander around the movie in a daze for 30 minutes okay that solves that problem i guess but they still have to go to the future and (laughs) fix things why? Why is any of this happening? And is it? It's a real uh, problem of success, and that the Wachowskis kind of had that same problem as well. It's like they probably had thoughts of, you know, if this is successful, with there's all this stuff stuff we want to do. But the end of the Matrix of Neo hanging up the phone and flying up into the sky is clearly more as a pump up the audience, get them really hyped moment. Yeah. Not necessarily a statement of intent of what the next movie is, because when you start the second movie, it's like oh right he's like the most powerful being in this universe yeah what do we do now and, <laughs> and he's, that's and he's cool like, with it <laughs> uh, yeah it's a bad it's it's a good place to start from i guess in terms of like giving yourself a challenge but it's maybe a bad place in terms of trying to structure your your next two movies and uh, I, I really feel like that hurt them a little bit in trying to be able to tell a, a new story i think i i, I still have some affection for the second matrix movie i don't particularly like revolutions i've never got on with revolutions at all yeah. but reloaded i think is is a real interesting attempt for them to expand on the ideas and again it's a little 2 a.m post fuzz club kind <laughs> of uh, <laughs> everyone's just sitting around in a room talking uh level of philosophy but i quite enjoy that and it does have some really stunning set pieces and it really feels as if they were taking the chance they'd been given to go even bigger and wilder and really running with it and the fact that it didn't really stick the landing never really bothered me that much because I still find it quite an entertaining movie to watch but it it definitely felt as if the boom was completely off the rose there and even though there have been subsequent installments in the Matrix Broader universe in terms of like video games like there was the path of neo which was the other oh my god yes the game where you got to play through the events of the movie as neo this time instead of as two characters you didn't know <laughs> didn't care about <laughs> um and let's try that ended, again <laughs> ended uh somewhat uh infamously with an entirely new ending where uh instead of fighting one a sm- regular sized agent smith in the kind of um final one-on-one sh- uh, showdown and neo celebrating himself all of the agent smiths kind of forge one giant agent smith and you just fight him uh it's uh it's kind of weird people should look that up on youtube the original ending to uh not the original ending but the alternate ending to uh, the path of neo is is a real wild thing to see especially because it becomes it comes complete with an introduction from the wachowskis and then there also there was the matrix online which was another one which was a mass uh, mmo rpg version of the matrix which just i think everyone preferred second life yeah <laughs> because it was like do the same thing but kind of get wonkier and stranger and with weird physics you know give me all of that uh so so i really feel as if as as perfect in some ways as the first film made, as the first film was, it's definitely the the broader franchise in general is really interesting, and it's this thing that is somewhat tarnished in the public perception because of everything that came after the first one, whilst it also being like just wildly successful in terms of like everyone has seen <laughs> the Matrix, like near enough, or everyone has some even just kind of like slight superficial awareness of what the matrix is and, and and various elements of its storytelling
1: for sure and i think just thinking about like kind of the parodies and and stuff and and storytelling but i think it was the language of the of the sequels as well that really got people because i just <laughs> i've just remembered uh will ferrell's masterful mtv movie awards architect yep, 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 yep. uh ergo vis vis concordantly um, and I and I think that's kind of the issue. Like, I, I think when the when the parody sort of supersedes the original, like mm-hmm. you 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 don't remember it, it, it. For for trying to make a lot of really quite out there ideas that weren't just kind of in the public discourse, really, and that was locked yeah. away in a lot of like academia. Um, to try and make that more open and and exciting and 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 through action like i think that's something that um is overlooked in the matrix it's like these people who are resisting and fighting and there is that star wars thing as well it's like no one's a pacifist here (laughs) um but when when it veers ever so slightly into sort of would that character really talk like that or are you using all of the fanciest words in the thesaurus that you know to, to mm. kind of give to give it an intellectual standing it's like if it's smart enough if it, if it is in itself like intellectually stimulating you you don't need to put all of this language into it right mm-hmm. so I think that might have been something that in the first in the first one I don't remember there being anywhere near as much of that kind of like obfuscation yeah it, it was much more straightforward and yeah now it is it, it did just tip into its own its own myth I think mm. and yeah the games and stuff I'm I, I have to say I'm I'm personally a lot more pleased that uh, Keanu Reeves is bringing is you know Bill and Ted is the intellectual property that's coming back for another spin not the Matrix
0: mm. yeah although uh, in also it's it's a big it's a big week for Keanu because also there was the trailer for john wick three parabella and that has a very clear matrix nod in it which is when uh, he goes to ian mcshane and he asks him what do you need and he just says guns lots of guns which is (laughs) he's exactly exactly a line from the matrix and it's like it 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 really is it is weird to me seeing like how that the, the 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 weight that that movie still has as a result that you can for everything, you know, that we've been saying about how the sequels and the the subsequent attempts to expand slash exploit the franchise, you know, maybe soured a lot of people on it. Like I saw so many people being really, really excited by that specific one line in the John Wick three trailer, being like, "Oh yeah, like you know, they're they're kind of leaning into it a little bit of the fact that, um, yeah, like the the John Wick franchise is in is it, obviously separate from." Everything the Matrix was trying to do, but because of the way in which that series repositioned Keanu Reeves' career, like that's the reason he does the John Wick movies now, is because he yeah. made himself this big action star as a result of of that movie. Because prior to that, obviously he'd done Speed and Point Break, but he was not necessarily like the first person you would think of in terms of being an action no. movie star. No, he was no. doing a lot of different things over the course of of his career and, and yeah also in terms of um i just remembered in terms of parodies of the matrix i think one of the again to go back to the simpsons like i think one of the indications of the change that underwent people's relationship and perception of the matrix is like the first time anyone was parodying it was they were like oh my god did you see that cool thing let's just kind of like do that because it's real cool and funny and then after that it's just everyone being really bemused and tired by it and i always remember the 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 matrix joke that i always really liked is there's an episode of the simpsons where bart and lisa are going to see a movie and i think they're going to see the latest installment in whatever the star wars equivalent is in in the simpsons yeah uh where they go and they're they're uh, ultimately disappointed because it's all about it's an, all a senatorial hearing where an 8080 bursts through the wall and then sits and takes minutes and then when they're out in the lobby like all the posters are things like uh it's a matrix christmas you're the matrix now charlie brown and all these things <laughs> like every movie <laughs> every movie is a <laughs> matrix movie and i feel like that indicates the, the the shift in sentiment for a lot of people was wow this is really cool and interesting and novel to we have had enough of the matrix right now (laughs) please please do something else which then also is is interesting in terms of like the the wachowski's subsequent career is that other than this burst of like six or seven years where they were obviously all gung-ho on doing the matrix like it's not something they themselves have seemed that willing to return to they've been more willing to pursue their dream projects you know making speed racer and or kind of big wild attempts to do stuff like uh cloud atlas or jupiter ascending or strange misguided stuff like do you remember that movie ninja assassin that they produced starring no. colbert's uh longtime rival rain korean pop star rain that was like one of their big swings that they produced and didn't direct but there was definitely this sense that for a while they were just trying to make anything that seemed like it'd be fun made which is a pretty good reason to do anything in hollywood but like it, it does feel as if they have not been content to just be the matrix people um for their entire careers which uh, is admirable even if not everything they've tried in in those uh, in that direction has really paid off
1: oh for sure i still absolutely love whatever they come up with just as premises because they are pioneers they are they are without a doubt I think the best directing partnership for action of of this century easily. Mm. Um, And, you know, in terms of their dream projects, and they have always pushed forward. I mean, you look at a film like bound, which is actually incredibly, you know, made in what, 96. And yet, and yet, you know, you think of the landscape now and it's like just catching up. I think, I think they are really stunning. um, You know, um filmmakers and with sensate as well that was that mix of their absolute dream project and again pushing it pushing it forward in terms of that was really ambitious to film in terms of having their character you know the sensates all feel each other and appear in different places and they made it look incredible and i think they really relish the challenge i don't get the sense from whenever there's interviews with lily and lana that they ever feel oh god we've got to figure this out this is really problematic they seem genuinely excited Mm. and wanting to they're people who want to make the medium grow right i don't feel that they want to like break things or disrupt things i think they have this really kind of fertile passion yeah but i think they just have a really they just love i think they just love what they do Mm, and I and I yeah. and, and they put so much of themselves into it, and I think they felt more and more able to do that. And I and I think it is a, a lot to do with kind of transitioning in the public eye. Yeah, that that they have in a way had to be more public. But but you know their their outpouring of uh, when Sense8 got cancelled, but how they do their their new fandom is is the Sense8 lot. I think, and and you know there was news recently that they offices shut down and I don't know what they're going on to do next but I like I like to think and hope that they're plotting something some new beautiful space opera that I may think ah well you know I don't think it completely worked but I still have seen things I never thought I was going to see and for that I'm just eternally grateful to them
0: Mm, yes absolutely and so we end this episode as we end all our episodes with Shot Reverse Shot Recommends which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think you the listeners will enjoy as well. Emily, what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week?
1: You. Well, I mean oh, not... I am pretty good. You but... are oh. pretty great, Ed. Thank you. Hey! That worked. Um, yes, I set them up. You knock them down. Uh, <laughs> well, apart from uh, yourself, Ed, uh, you, the Netflix series uh, based on a book which I have not read but would be interested to do so uh, starring Penn Badgley and Elizabeth... I want to say Lyle. Is that right? L- Maybe it's Lyle, Maybe sure. it's L- Lyle. I don't know. And uh, it is. Oh, it's ridiculously entertaining. Um, it scratches the sort of itch that Dexter left, where you mm. you are in the head of um, a monologue of a, a completely deranged, terrible uh, man who is stalking and inserting himself and manipulating the life of um a woman who comes into his bookshop uh in order to um make make her his own it's all all obsession and and things it manages to work as a cautionary tale um and also be incredibly entertaining in a dark way because I think it toes the line really well in a way that for example uh the Zach Efron Ted Bundy film extremely wicked shockingly evil and vile mm-hmm. as uh which I had to bring up there to remember the exact order as you did in the the preview I believe <laughs> Ed yeah. um because it's much more sympathetic to the idea of like you you understand the lengths that he's going to and how vulnerable she is And it's it's also very funny because as awful as he is, the facts of her life are actually quite uh, blatant in terms of where she's perhaps veering off course and not doing things that are in her best interests. So when you find yourself agreeing with him, you then have to question yourself, obviously not his, his methods, but I think it hits the tone really well because it doesn't make a joke out of anything, but at no point. Do you are you led to believe that his actions are right it's just that it's very clear she's uh, yeah making some questionable choices um but mm-hmm. it's, it's really well shot it's got um it's very knowing i think but not in a wink wink meta riverdale way um it's it uh has genuine peril uh, which is something that you always yeah an upgrade from mild to genuine as you do on the, the age certificates the bbfc stuff yeah and i just think in terms of there's a bit of a sort of desperate housewives vibe to it almost for me but for millennials, um and dating and that that their internet um yeah i am halfway through and uh, i think i'll be finishing it very soon ed <laughs>
0: <laughs> cool i'm gonna recommend us Shot reverse shot. We're good. Everyone enjoy us. No, uh, I'm going to recommend <laughs> us the new film from Jordan Peele, the follow up to his movie Get Out, which came out a few years ago and was obviously a significant hit and uh, won some Oscars and is yeah it was a very good movie. Uh, this is a somewhat uh, woollier movie, I think, than Get Out. Get Out, Get Out was a fairly concise and focused movie, and Us, I think, has a lot on its mind I think is operating on an allegorical level that is way more knotty and intriguing to me as a result of that particularly in terms of the way the story unfolds it's very hard to talk about but basically I I, I feel like it's a movie that seems to have divided a lot of people and uh, I feel like the reasons why are generally down to the way in which the movie kind of progresses and the way in which it is not quite the movie that was promised by the trailer in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. and it is in a lot of ways kind of bolder and stranger and crazier and bigger, uh, in ways that I personally found really exciting because I spent the whole movie more or less sitting there thinking, "What? Where is this going?" Like I was, <laughs> it was very, it, it was very unsettling and even though in retrospect like looking back on it and things that are set up at the beginning and kind of hinted at and you know like Peel's very good at setting off setting up and paying things off in a uh, in a kind of a way that's very very satisfying about feeling predictable like you can see the breadcrumbs in retrospect of where the path was going but even then it, it still feels like a a really surprising and interesting vision it looks great it's made for about four times the budget that get out was yet looks about 30 times better which is not to say that get out was a bad looking movie but this just looks so kind of gorgeous and elegant Mm. and there are some shots in it which are uh, i think already seared on the public consciousness just just from the images of the trailer you know these images of real moments of kind of like an unease and terror that kind of crop up it's very funny as well which uh you know is perhaps not surprising given that jordan peele is uh, has a comedy background and i think is someone who really enjoys a well-deployed joke to both diffuse and heighten the tension and the cast are all great uh, particularly lupita nyong'o who gets to play you know in these doppelgangers that you know crop up throughout the film everyone gets a chance to play different versions of themselves and kind of really go to extremes in some ways but her character or characters really do get to run the gamut and show why she is such an amazing actress and someone who's been really undervalued uh, in the years since she won her oscar for 12 years of slaves i hope that this leads to her getting more work and yeah i'm just i am really really taken with us and i think uh, i'm i'm looking forward to uh perhaps to us on this show talking about it once everyone's seen it because uh, i think it's going to it could be a real interesting discussion
1: Us does us
0: If you've enjoyed this episode of the show, then please subscribe to us on Stitcher, iTunes, Player FM, Acast, Spotify, leave us a review, rate us and recommend it to your friends. It's the best way to help us grow audience. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, where we are at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next week with something entirely different. But until then, it's goodbye from me.
1: And it's goodbye from me. And remember, there is no spoon.